You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. One of the biggest challenges we face, if not the biggest challenge I think we face as a community, mostly, not entirely, but mostly made up of post-evangelical deconstructed people. Uh, One of the biggest challenges we face is this question, what is reconstructed? If anything, right? This is a question that's come up many times here over the last few years, at least. It's a question that we seek to address and answer on on a regular basis. And to be honest, there are a variety of good answers, I think, to that question, many of which we've discussed here. But one of those answers that I don't think we've delved into enough, covered enough, is this one. And it's awe. A-W-E, awe. I think we can reconstruct a deep sense of spiritual vitality on awe by cultivating and fostering a sense of awe. But what is awe, you may be wondering? Well, according to the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, awe is is the feeling we get in the presence of something vast that challenges our understanding of the world, like looking up at a million, at millions of stars in the night sky or marveling at the birth of a child. When people feel awe, they may use other words to describe their experience, such as wonder, amazement, surprise, or transcendence, end quote. Studies have been done that show a direct correlation between our experience of awe and our capacity to find meaning in life. In other words, by cultivating a sense of awe, one is also cultivating meaning, which is to say that one is cultivating a love of life and a love for others and a sense of connection to others and a sense of connection to the world around them. Awe is directly tied to this sense of oneness, this sense of connection, and this sense of being a part of something much bigger than just ourselves. It's a sense of being a part of some greater whole. That's awe. That's what awe does. You could say that awe awakens our minds. Awe awakens our minds and and infuses life with meaning and depth like nothing else, really. I'm reminded of a line from my favorite, well, one of my favorite movies, and Abe, I know you like this film as well, Joe versus the Volcano with, uh, oh, yes, I forgot, Nathan, you like this as well. Uh, I haven't mentioned it in a few years. I used to trot this line out every month or so. Uh, But there's this great line in it, and it's a 90s film with Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, and there's a scene where Meg Ryan's character, and I'm dating myself here, talking about Meg Ryan, I guess, but whatever. Uh, Meg Ryan's character says this, My father says almost everybody in the world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you talk to. Only a few people are truly awake, and they live in a state of constant, total amazement. I love that. I think to be truly awake and alive, 
means to live in a state of awe and wonderment. And cultivating awe, I think, is really a spiritual practice. It is a spiritual practice. Uh, and I think we all can engage in this spiritual practice, no matter where we're at on the theological spectrum, whether we're Christian, non-Christian, atheist, theist, or somewhere in between. We all can experience awe, cultivate awe. And I think that does wonderful things for us. Awe, you could say, is a universal and timeless human experience. It is universal, I think, and timeless Philosophers, social theorists, and theologians believe that awe and wonderment is what gave rise to, in no small part, to the world's religions and various spiritual traditions. In other words, our religions and spiritual traditions first began in large part as a response, as constructs, responses to this universal and timeless human experience of awe and wonderment at the world and life, and consciousness, and beinghood. It's all intertwined. I mean, just look at the temples. L look at our temples and sacred spaces, both ancient and new. They're, they're built to inspire awe and a sense of majesty and transcendence. If you've ever been in a, I mean, even this building is quaint and new as it is. It's, you know, these vaulted ceilings, you know, the high ceiling, the windows. It's meant to give you a sense of awe and meant to inspire a sense of connection to, to the majestic, to the divine. Other buildings do this better. <laughs> this one's not so good at it, in my opinion, but if you've ever been in a cathedral, you ever been to a, a, a mosque, one of these really ornate mosques, they're meant to inspire awe and a sense of transcendence and majesty. The designers and the builders had that in their hearts. The faithful had that in their hearts when they set out to build those structures. It's about awe. It's about giving space to wonderment. It's to revel in those things. And to do so is to connect to something bigger than ourselves. To, to a sense, lose our sense of self and individuality for the sake of collective consciousness to, in a sense, displace and let go of the ego for the sake of a kind of non-dualism, a kind of oneness, if I may be so bold. That's what those buildings and our spiritual traditions fundamentally, I think, foundationally at least, are up to. So awe is really this foundational human spiritual experience that undergirds our various religions and spiritual traditions. And it's something that we can cultivate individually and collectively. And I think we should do that here, not just today, but on a regular basis. I think this is something we can reconstruct on to use contemporary parlance for us post-evangelical, deconstructed, progressive maybe non-theistic Christians. <laughs> I don't know what to call us. There's a lot of names. Some of us don't even call ourselves Christian anymore, which is fine. But I think we're all still interested in, in awe, are we not? In that which, you know, that, that experience of meaning, wonder and beauty and that which enriches life with depth. Are, are we not still interested in that? That's the depth of our spirituality. And let's, let's foster that here. Let's cultivate that here. Let's reconstruct on that here. The question, of course, becomes what things give us awe? 
what gives me awe might not be what gives you awe, right? But I don't know about you, the but the recent deep space photos coming from the James Webb Space Telescope kind of do it for me. There you go. Thank you, Abe. I know the lighting in here is not so good, but you know, with the exception of the really brightest stars on there, because the really brightest spots are actually, as I understand it, stars within our own galaxy. That's why they're really bright and they're kind of in the in the foreground. Everything else up there, all the other points of light are individual galaxies made up of billions of stars and billions of planets. And keep in mind, this is a photo of a part of the, of the sky, as I understand it, would be like, like a pea held out at arm's length. That's what the James Webb was focusing on. <laughs> and look what it got. We, we are looking back in time here. Some of these galaxies are 13.8 billion years old. That means the light that you're seeing up there on that screen has been traveling towards us for 13.8 billion years. These are galaxies that formed, relatively speaking, not long after the Big Bang. And if you look carefully towards the center, you can see a sort of swirl effect. That's the effect of gravity on the light coming from those galaxies. They're coming so far and, go and going through so, many, so much, I guess, gravitational fields that it's warping space-time. I mean, this is astounding. I mean, if that doesn't give you awe, I, I don't know what, I don't know what will. It's okay if it doesn't, I guess. I'm not saying if you don't feel awe, how dare you? But, but that gives me awe, and a lot of us a sense of awe. And I think pictures like this tell a story. I think there's a story here, and it's a great story. And the story is that we are deeply connected to the cosmos and everything in it, all the elements in nature you know, the periodic table of the elements, all the elements on that table, heavier than hydrogen, with the exception of helium a little bit, but all the other elements, the 180 or so elements on there, had to be formed in the furnace, in the core, the, in the intense heat and pressure of, of billions of stars over billions of years. And when those stars died and disintegrated, they seeded the universe, the cosmos, with these elements, the elements that make up you and me, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, etc. Most of, well, I don't know about most, but a lot of what makes up you and me was formed in these stars. Some of those maybe even on the screen from 13.8 billion years ago. That's, you could say that's us up there. How astounding is that? But consider this, we are stardust. That's what this really means. The stuff that makes up you and me came from these stars. We are stardust. We are you could say it this way, we are living and thinking stars. We are reincarnated stars, reincarnated stardust into living, feeling, and conscious beings able to contemplate our so-called starness. That's what we're doing when we're marveling at this picture. We are stars marveling at our starness. Take a moment and let that sink in. 
I think that's a, a, a source of great awe and wonderment and something that gives us a sense of connection to everything and everyone because everything and everyone is stardust. The rocks, the trees, the dogs, the birds, the bees, it's all stardust, just like us. I'm reminded of a passage in our sacred scriptures, Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's perhaps the most profound scripture in all of the Bible. And it's meant on the surface, it's meant to give us a sense of humility. It's meant to remind us of our own mortality and our own finitude. You are dust, O mortal, and to dust you shall return. But dialectically and paradoxically and the deepest spiritual truths are always dialectical and paradoxical. That text is also profoundly exalting because to say that you are dust is to say that you are stardust. And it's to say that you are in fact connected to everything and everyone because everything and everyone is stardust. What's more exalting and transcendent and awe-inspiring than that? I dare, I dare say little. Add to that the utter strangeness of consciousness. How strange is consciousness? Here we are, stardust, able to contemplate our starness. Here we are, living and thinking, feeling stars. How strange is consciousness? And the fact that there is, consider that there is new and compelling evidence that consciousness is not just the intrinsic nature of some forms of matter, like our brains our advanced human brains, but consider that there's new and compelling evidence that consciousness is the intrinsic nature of all matter. This is no longer just a fringe idea, but a theory getting traction in the mainstream. I won't go too far down this rabbit hole this morning, but it's really interesting and awe-inspiring. And one of the more interesting theories out there right now that I want to share with you is called reducer theory, reducer theory. This is the idea that our brains are not the, uh, yeah, our brains are not the product of consciousness. Wait a minute, let me back up. This is the idea that our brains are not the producer of consciousness, but rather the reducer of consciousness. What does this mean? Well, it's been assumed for a long time that our complex brains, and by that, uh, and only our complex human brains, it's been assumed, somehow produce consciousness and self-awareness. We're not sure how consciousness uh, can do that. We're not sure how, but consciousness, we've been told, is just the novel and strange byproduct of us being really intelligent animals. But that's becoming harder and harder to believe. Namely, because questions like, how does cold, dead, mindless, and passive matter do this? How does hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and a handful of other non-living elements, how do these elements produce minds? How does 
mindless oxygen, hydrogen, mindless nitrogen produce mines? That's a good question. How, how do they produce minds? How do they produce living and conscious beings like us? And like, I think, anyway, I'll get into that later. The new theory is that mind and consciousness, this is the new theory, that mind and consciousness is the underlying nature of reality itself. And therefore, our brains are not so much producing consciousness, but rather reducing the consciousness that exists all around us and in everything. Our brains are reducing that cosmic consciousness into unique and individual expressions like you and me, frogs and dogs, trees and bees. These are all different manifestations and reductions of the cosmic consciousness that permeates all of reality. Some, with, some of those expressions have greater sentience and greater consciousness or awareness than other expressions, right? Our form of consciousness is not the same as, as my dog or the tree outside. But nevertheless, these, these things are all alive and exhibiting different levels of awareness and experience. These things are conscious. Think of, uh, think of this reducer idea of being analogous to the way a cell phone works, right? Your cell phone does not produce the internet. Right? Cell phone doesn't produce the internet or the Wi-Fi signal. Rather, it receives it and it reduces it into images, text, and sound that you can see and hear. If your cell phone dies or turns off, the internet doesn't die, right? The, the Wi-Fi signal in the, in the space around you doesn't disappear or die. It's still there, waiting for another device to come along and Receive it, reduce it, manifest its presence. In, this, in a similar way, it's thought that consciousness or mind is the intrinsic nature of reality, of the universe. And we are simply downloading or reducing it or manifesting it as living and conscious beings. I'll, I'll leave it there for now. There's a lot more that can be said, right? But the reason why I mention this is because for me, it's all part of the awe and the wonderment that gives me a renewed sense of spiritual vitality. To be clear, this is not, I want to be very clear, this is not a cryptic way of reasserting a kind of theism. I'm not trying to sneak God in through the back door here, as it were. I'm not reasserting a kind of certainty or conservatism making a cryptic claim like the universe is in control and everything has a purpose and makes sense and everything will be okay in the end because, you know, the universe, God is in control. No, we are still immersed in mystery and unknowing. And if anything is for sure, nothing is for sure. We must live accordingly. As that great theologian, Christian theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, God would have us know that we must live as people who manage our lives without him. God would have us know that we must live as people who must manage our lives without him. That much is for sure. Rather, what I'm trying to do here today is simply tell some new stories that I find meaningful and that maybe you can find meaningful. 
I feel like we need more to reconstruct on than simply this message, embrace the void. Embrace and make peace with, with the meaninglessness of life, which, by the way, is basically the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> embrace the cross. Embrace the death of God, and you will know new life. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's a good message. Yes, I think we can reconstruct on that. But that's a pretty bleak message. <laughs> it's kind of bleak. And uh, I don't think it's the whole story. I think the whole story is that we are beautiful, complex beings that are basically living stars and thereby connected both physically and even consciously to everything and everyone around us. And I choose to find meaning in that. I choose to find meaning in that. I think that's a meaningful story, a profoundly meaningful story, regardless of where you're at on the religious and theological spectrum. And it doesn't have to be meaningful for you, but it's meaningful for me. And I think it is for an increasing number of people as well. That's why I mention it. The bottom line is we must create meaning. We have to. Meaning is not given to us. Meaning is not given to us from some deity on high or from the universe, at least not in any kind of direct or clear way. Finding meaning and creating meaning is entirely up to us. And for many of us, a lot of the old stories don't work anymore. For some of us, the stories we inherited from the church and the Bible come with too much baggage for us to identify with anymore or find much meaning in. We must therefore read those stories differently or create and find new stories that work for us. But the task of finding meaning, the task for telling stories is up to us. Personally speaking, I still find much meaning. I, I still find a lot of meaning in the story of Jesus of Nazareth, the writings of the prophets and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, like Job and Ecclesiastes. I still find a lot of meaning within church tradition, like the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate here every week, and we will in just a few moments. I find our ancient sacred stories and traditions to be rich repositories of meaning. And I think a lot of you still feel the same way, but that's not the only place, the only things we can find meaning in. There's other stories to tell. There's other stories to tell, just like the one I was sharing this morning about Stardust and the James Webb photo, photos. I think nature and science and, and life itself and all of its glorious weirdness, and life is weird and strange and full of unexplained things. I think that's a wonderful story that we can reconstruct on. I think there's so much to live in awe of. That's really what I'm talking about today. This idea of living in awe and wonderment, embracing awe. The mystery of life and being. There, there's so much to live in awe of. And awe is a great thing to cultivate 
and to, and to foster in our lives and to reconstruct on. It gives us a sense of connection to others in the world around us like nothing else. It fills us with a deep appreciation for life like nothing else. We need stories. We need ideas and stories that give us a sense of awe, that move us deeply, that make us feel a sense of oneness, a sense of being connected or a part of some greater whole, because we are. I think that's true. I think it's factual that we are connected to each other, that we are some part of some greater whole. We don't have to know what all that means. We can't know what all that means. But we should tell those stories and, and choose to find meaning in them, I think. Whatever stories that fill us with awe, those stories are worth telling. Those stories should be told. They, are, they constitute a new kind of sacred story. Sacred as any other story. And I think that gives us a lot to reconstruct on. Let us enter now into our time of sharing in communion, the Lord's Supper. And again, this is a, an ancient church tradition that I find and that we find here profoundly meaningful. This is part of what forms this community and connects us. And we, we as human beings, I think we're meant to live in these kinds of stories, these shared stories that we find meaning in together. And I think the Lord's Supper, the story of Jesus's death and burial and resurrection, however you read that, that's a meaningful story. That's a powerful story that unites us here. And so as we celebrate that here this morning, as we observe this tradition, think about what it means for you. As always here, you're invited forward and you can take one of these gluten-free crackers and a this is just grape juice. Take that, take that, and go back to your seat and receive it when you're ready as Max leads us in song. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. All right. So every day, every day, every Sunday, um, we have a little Q&A. Uh, at the end of our services, because we believe dialogue and discussion is part of what it means for us to be a church. And so I invite questions, comments, um, complaints. Hey, Max, could you give me your mic? Because the other mic's not working to pass around. Um, yeah, comments, questions about anything I talked about. Um, thank you, sir. Um, I'm also interested in hearing, if you're up for it, what stories do you find meaning in what gives you a sense of awe even, you know, but what stories do you find meaningful that speak to your spirit, that give you a sense of spiritual vitality? And of course, if you're joining us online on Zoom, please feel free to unmute and just raise your voice that way. But yeah, Jason. I found this talk convicting 
please say more. And I don't think I'm at the point where I can reconstruct yet. And I think that's interesting. Uh, what, do you I, mean, what do you mean by that? If, yeah, if I may ask. Like, you don't have to answer. No, I, I want to answer. <laughs> when I look at cathedrals, I see towers of bat, right? Perception is a lie. It's our interpretation of something. It's not uh, what is actually there. Or when I think of the Bible and the Bible stories, I'm still looking at it as preachy, trying to give me direction and not, I don't think I'm at the point where I can create meaning with, I'm too cynical. And, you know, uh, so that's what I mean by it. It's convicting to think like, you know, there's awe out there. You can hunt for it. You can find meaning. You can make meaning. I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I, I'm there yet. You know, I, yeah, it's just a statement, I guess. I'm not, no, no direction on that point. No, I'm it's, just it's saying, great though. Yeah, thank you. That's how it felt. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're speaking for certainly a certain percentage of those who call this place home. And that's part of what it means to be in exile, to undergo deconstruction and to have essentially the worldview you were raised on pulled apart for all the right reasons, you know, <laughs> um, leaves us adrift in exile. And uh, that's okay. I'm not here to tell you, well, let me help you reconstruct and fix that for you, Jason. You know what I mean? You know that about me. Whatever. Um, thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, Dan, would you? Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Um, when I had my, my illness last year, I thought, um, so I had cancer last year, and I thought that uh, for a while, I didn't know what my prognosis was. I was, you know, I thought, you know, maybe I might die. Like, what if I don't get through this? And uh, And so when I found out that, I was, you know, things were looking better and I was going to, I was just like, okay, if I get through this, like, I'm going to be loving life. Like every moment is going to be amazing. And kind of like what you were talking about earlier, it's like, oh, I'm just going to have awe about everything. And prior to this experience, you know, I would get really kind of frustrated and annoyed at really trivial things. And, you know, my career's not right where I want it to be, or I don't make as much money as I wanted, or I couldn't buy that cool thing I wanted to buy, like just stupid stuff like that. And then um, when I found out that I was going to be okay, I just, I went for like a walk down the street and it was amazing. I'm like, this is all I need. This is um, like, my life is awesome. Like I'm alive, I'm alive, you know? And then uh, inevitably, like months after that, I started to kind of get back into my regular mindset. And it's just like, well, that's kind of, it's kind of hard to be operating on that level constantly, you know, driving in LA traffic being like, I am so amazed to be alive. Like, that's just not gonna, that's not realistic, you know? So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what your take or your advice would be on trying to 
is it even a reasonable thing to constantly be trying to put yourself in that mindset? Or is it something that maybe you can only visit once in a while to kind of check in with yourself? Because, uh, yeah, I don't know. And I, I, I was kind of feeling guilty because I was like, oh, I'm just kind of falling back into the way that I was before. And uh, I need to make sure I'm learning the lesson that I was supposed to learn from this experience. And uh, I don't know. I think that I'm just, you know, I'm doing the best I can to be more appreciative of things but uh it can be challenging sometimes because just the way the world is it just takes you out of it and it makes you you get caught up in like really ridiculous things you know <laughs> yeah and i don't think you need to feel guilty about that let me just say I, I think we need to normalize that experience and not feel guilty about not being able to like live in the moment constantly and and have that deep sense of well-being or oneness or awe you know life life is extremely hard and it's not fair for you shouldn't you shouldn't feel guilty about that first of all Dan I just want to make that clear none of us should because we because because life happens or and we have to live you know in traffic and with our jobs and you know with all of life's innate difficulties but we can have a, an orientation meaning a kind of mindset where we're 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 practicing on a regular basis you know like you love to hike I know you love to hike and I and and I do too. And part of the reason why I love hiking and going in, into nature is because I, I I get that sense of refreshment or that sense of awe sometimes looking at a vista, you know, you can see for miles. And you have that sense of smallness and that sense of perspective. I think that's part of what we're talking about here. Just learning what works for you and finding those moments. It's like learning how to meditate, right? And those who are really good at meditation will we'll say, I don't live in the clouds all day. I get angry. I get frustrated with my kids or with my job. And that's just part of life. But I have a, a regular practice where I'm able to center myself. And you know what I mean? And ground myself. And part of the reason why we still do spiritual community weekly and meet otherwise, right? Through church, hikes, book club, you know, is to, is to find those moments where we can center ourselves, ground ourselves and, and have a change our perspective and, you know, maybe have that kind of a, those moments of spiritual vitality or awakening, you know, and even if it's just for an hour on a Sunday morning, right, we need those, um, you know, we can have those moments walking in nature, right, you don't need to come to church, you can have a, a great conversation with a friend over a meal, over some drinks and get that same experience, take some mushrooms, <laughs> you know, <laughs> How many pastors have recommended that? Um, I haven't done that yet, but one day, when my kids are older, I'm planning on trying mushrooms. Um, I just I just feel like I know people that have had these incredible spiritual experiences. Are you kidding me right now? No, I'm just kidding. What's that? What? No, I was just like, how dare you? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was kind of wondering when you were um, going through uh, cancer, if they were going to like offer you that, you know, as a way of, you know, helping you. Because I heard it helps with like, not that you were depressed, but I heard it helps with like depression. Anyway, I'm just saying we all need to like find those 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 practices um, because they are spiritual. They're spiritual practices, really. These are all different kinds of spiritual practices that can be rewarding and enriching. Um, and and finding community around those practices is equally as important. I think you know, not just being on our own. Um, I think practicing spiritual practices. Is, is usually best done uh, in community with others. Okay. Anyway, but yeah, don't feel guilty. My God. Man. I think people often have a have a outlook on pastors or 
you know, being like, oh, he must or she must just be constantly in communion with the Lord. <laughs> you should see me at home. Um, no. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, it's an orientation, right? It's, you can build a lifestyle around a practice. Anyway, good, good question. Good point. Somebody else have something you want to add or have a question and a comment? Cool, cool. Maybe one day instead of communion, we'll do some mushroom. No, I'm kidding. We will not do that. Not, not in the building. I don't think that's probably illegal. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, thanks so much for being here. I, we want to close, as we always do, with this little benediction uh, I came up with to kind of center us, right? Because it feels kind of cold when I just say, thanks for being here, everybody. Go in peace. Um, so let's say this together. I think this is, this is meaningful. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thank you so much for being here, my friends. Thanks to all of you who joined us via Zoom online. And uh, see you soon. Go in peace.